HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Nyman Ranch is presenting a virtual event series honoring their community of independent family farmers as their annual hog farmer appreciation dinner couldn't take place in person this year. The kickoff event is August 5th, 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern. HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, will moderate a panel on the future of restaurants featuring Jeff Amascato from Shake Shack, Chef Stephen Jones from The Larder and The Delta, Chef Mary Sue Milliken from Socolo Border Grill Restaurants and Catering, and BBQ Mexicana, and Bruce Reinstein, Kinetic 12. The series continues with educational events through September 11th. Listeners of In the Saw should check out their panels on resilience for restaurants, farms, and food businesses. Get more details and reserve your free spot at www.nymanranchhfad, which stands for Hog Farmer Appreciation Dinner. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Star Edwards, founder of Bitchin' Sauce, the vegan dips and sauces that sell like hotcakes and get more popular every day. Bitchin' Sauce now spans to all corners of North America and is available in over 6,500 stores, including Whole Foods, Costco, Target, Walmart, 7-Eleven, and of course, online. Um, Star, I'm so psyched to have you here you heard how psyched I was before the show. <laughs> I feel like you've kind of paved the path a little bit for um, Haven. So I'm just, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah. Um, so before we get kind of into all of the stuff about bitching, just a little, you know, COVID check-in. How are you? Where are you? Are you safe and sound? Family? Um, are you working remotely? How's your team? That kind of all that. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Well, COVID has been such an interesting time. We were kind of gearing up for remote work before everything hit. Mm -hmm. My husband is in a band and they are touring musicians and um, they basically just got called off the road and we found ourselves in Tennessee, um, okay. kind of on lockdown basically. Um, but since then, uh, we we actually were currently on the West Coast now and um, it's just business as usual from a working perspective, you know, we're still working remotely. We have our kids running around and right. everyone is staying healthy and safe. And then we have just the most amazing team too that is keeping, you know, our operations going. How many people are on your team? Question. And question two, does this mean that this is kind of the first time where you and your husband are in the same place at the same time? for like a substantial amount of time since he's usually on the road or I know. No. Yeah. I know that that's how it is for a lot of people, but actually, um, so my husband co-founded bitch and sauce also. So we've okay. been working together side by side every hour of every day okay. for a really long time. <laughs> and, um, and my kids were, you know, being homeschooled and we were geared up for this remote work because we went with them on the road. So oh, we would travel it. around. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, I was like, but we well, have to be interesting on a marriage. I never thought about the people. I mean, a lot of my <laughs> friends are with their spouses more than they ever have been, but I never thought about people who are usually like really away a lot. Yeah. And, um, but that's not your case. That's cool. That's great that you get to travel together. It's been wonderful. You know, we do sales calls in, in the afternoon and then at night he plays shows. It's really funny. Amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Okay. Which kind of, I mean... Now that everyone knows that, I think the backstory of how Bitchin started makes a lot of sense. Um, so tell me a little bit about where you grew up, you know, what you were like as a kid. The, you know, what I read was that when you were 16, you became vegan and you basically started kind of making some form of Bitchin sauce then. Um, which was in 2004 or something like that. So this has been a big chunk of your life from what I understand. So tell me a little bit more. Yeah, so I grew up in Oregon. Um, I was actually, I was born in California and we ended up going back there when I was in my sophomore year of high school. Mm -hmm. um, my family, my, my parents were hippies, mm -hmm. which is why I named Star. <laughs> and... And we, you know, I was always around health food and it was kind of a, an interesting part of, you know, going to school and I would always have like bean and rice chapatis and everyone mm -hmm. else had like hot pockets. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh -huh. So really when I decided to go vegan, it was an experimental phase, but it wasn't that crazy. Um, right. The, I think probably the crazy part of it was I was trying to be raw vegan, which at that time was like really really difficult yeah um, I remember that era yeah the era of raw yeah there, there yeah. was starting to be a lot more um, op options in the stores but in general like nothing tasted really good yeah and you know this is pre-plant-based this is yep. before they came out with like a friendly term that was accessible this right is when everything was just vegan <laughs> yeah <laughs> no I remember yeah so yeah so um the bitch and sauce the you know first variation of it was just ingredients that I had like on hand, like in, in my pantry, like nutritional yeast was not a weird thing for us to have stocked mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made this thing because it satisfied my cravings. I wanted something creamy and kind of was like inspired by just pestos and romescos and was like, all right, let's put this together and see what we get. And you got something really good. Caught um, something really yeah. good and really versatile, which was exciting. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems to me, I mean, first of all, I am the proud recipient of a lot of bitch and sauce. Um, I took a photo of my refrigerator. Um, if anyone, I don't know how many people actually follow my personal Instagram, but it's on my personal Instagram. And there are a lot of flavors of bitchin', but it seems like the base is sort of remains the same. And then you can kind of add flavor and spice to that base in a lot of in a lot of them, not all of them, but it's, it, it does seem like it lends itself to a lot of different, it's just a good sort of almost neutral base. Um, it is. Yeah. yeah. Our original is the base for all of our other flavors. And it was kind of a, a happy discovery when we realized that we could make so many different variations. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Okay. So you didn't take it to the farmer's market when you were 16 though. You waited a little bit, I think. He, Yes. So as a kid, I was always very industrious. I had a paper route. I uh, actually, I graduated high school early. Mm -hmm. So at 16, I was um, independent and living with some friends um, and working full time. Um, But, you know, after doing that for a couple of years, I I think I realized that I wanted to be around people my own age a little bit more um, and decided to move back um, to where my family was, which that was at the time San Diego. um, And, you know, just experience more age appropriate things like college. So in like true hippie parent form, you were like, okay, I'm good. I'm going to go live with some friends. And they were like, cool star, be free and, and fly. Like I I think there was no stopping me, honestly. I think they were, you know, just so lovingly, you know, allowing me to do it. But really, I I think I just was a very strong headed person. Right. And what did you do when you were 16? Like, where did you make money? Like, how did you what did you do? Oh, yeah, I am. I started out as working at a mortgage company. And I did that while I was it was a loan processor. That was fun. Uh-huh. Um, and then I ended up being an assistant to um, a guy who just, he ran multiple businesses and it was really an amazing learning experience um, wow. because he taught me how to like, you know, do taxes for a business. And It's so amazing. Everyone's story. This is why I love this podcast so much. Like I love it because I think it, as I said, genuinely helps people, but I mm-hmm. also love it because in in everyone's story are like the shoots of how they ended up doing what they're doing. And it's oh, yeah. not linear ever. It's very ever. interesting. I mean, very rarely. Is it <laughs> like, yes, I wanted to like found a food company and like, here I am. It's always something like, and you get these little bits of wisdom. And that's why, like, I don't know when people say I'm too old to do it or I'm not experienced doing it, or I don't know if I can really quit my day job. I'm never like, no, it's fine. Just like, you know, throw total caution to the wind and leave your whole life. But there's really nothing in your past that isn't going to support you somehow on this, you know, path. Def- it's it's really fun to hear. That's so cool. Definitely. So yeah. Definitely. Back to San Diego. And is that when you kind of were, were you like, okay, this could be a business because everyone I know wants my sauce, basically? 
No, not at that point. So okay. I moved back to San Diego, and um, that's where I met my husband. Mm-hmm. And we got pregnant and had a little baby boy and then decided that we should probably take care of him. Right. Um, it's, <laughs> it's Skipper. He's the, he's the little boy on the packaging, actually. Oh, um, right. But, yeah, so we, you know, in an effort to take care of him, um, I was – I also just didn't want to never see him. Right. So I had a really great job as a personal chef's apprentice where I got to bring him along a lot of times, which was really awesome. Um, And as I was doing that more, I was like, wow, being a personal chef is like pretty cool. Like it's a flexible thing. You get to um, choose your clients. And so I decided to to kind of go off and build my own personal chef business. Um, And Bitch and Sauce is the result of trying to build that personal chef business. Um, (laughs) which like, I'm so glad, I'm so glad we went down the road of having a product instead of having to go and you yep. know, do dishes every day. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, on my last episode, I was, I interviewed um, a woman named Essie from Essie Spice and she mm-hmm. kind of had this fork in the road moment too, where she considered a restaurant or chef or, you know, but she went with product because she had a business background too. And she just knew you know, how much more scalable and how much less dependent on like her, you know, there are only so many hours in the day and there are only so many clients you can have. It's kind of like with the cooking school, there were only so many seats I could fill at night. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So even if it was like the maxed out success it could be, it was still fully dependent on a lot of things. And also it couldn't, you can't get into every home in America you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was partially probably very, you know, thoughtful on one hand, but, but how did, I mean, so you were selling it at the farmer's market and then how did you know that you actually had a business? Like, how did you know that this was actually going to be a business or when? I think that when we, you know, first started at the farmer's market, it was just trying to replace the income that I had from being an apprentice, you know, which was like $13 an hour. So we sold like 30 tubs and I was like, this is amazing. It's going to support our family. I'm so happy. And then we sold like a hundred tubs at a market. I was like, (laughs) oh my goodness, this can support more people. And like, you know, my family in even in an even bigger way. Right. And then I think it was like really like at that moment that I was like, maybe this doesn't have the ceiling that I think is there. Maybe it's a lot bigger than I think it is. Right. And I mean, at that point, were you making it at home still? Um, we had a commercial kitchen. This was before they passed the cottage law, right? Um, which would have been really nice at that point in time because, you know, renting a commercial kitchen was kind of tough. Right. And that, I mean, you had to also probably learn how to, you know, just sort of quote unquote, like industrialize the recipe to some extent too. Like the way that you were making it for 10 people was different than making a hundred tubs of it, I would imagine. Yeah. I think we kind of, we came to that realization kind of late in the game. It was definitely just multiple blenders for a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) And and my husband was, was the head chef and he was just there, you know, rocking two blenders at the same time. It's great. Great. And how did you, like, when was your first retailer? Like, when did a store 
come to you? Or did you start thinking, okay, I'm going to try to get this into stores because I'm getting a little tired of the farmer's market? No, I think we were, we were just so happy that we were making money at the farmer's market, honestly, um, that it was when like it first rained at a farmer's market mm. that we were like, oh, shoot, that's, this is going to impact our month. <laughs> this is yeah. going to be a problem. And yeah. so then we started looking a little bit closer at going to retailers and um, we just started with, you know, our local market um, and they were amazing. They kind of walked us through the whole wholesaling process and like we talked with them about how much we should sell it to them for. Right. Like, it's the really embarrassing conversations, actually. Um, but it ended up being great. We started with um, just mom and pops around us and then got to some larger, you know, regional chains. And then um, Whole Foods still had their regional um program back then. So we yeah. got into Whole Foods and that was a big deal. Very yeah. You know, it's so funny because I, I, I don't know if I've told the story like on the show before, but I, I feel like I might have, but when we, you know, when we first started making the sauce at the cooking school, I really didn't want to invest any more money than I had to into it. It seemed like a very big long shot to come up with a product that was actually going to sell Mm-hmm. And we sold, you know, we sold our romesco and our pesto and our chimney and our whatever in our little refrigerator in the front of the cooking school. But it was not like it had a shelf life of, you know, five days or whatever. It, like it wasn't commercially viable at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I basically like pipe filled a couple pouches, slapped on some like labels that we kind of made and went to the fancy food show and had this like little table. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out, you know, Fresh Direct, Whole Foods, like they came to our table and they pretty much right away were like, we really like this. It's a great idea. You know, let's go. When can you kind of be on the shelf? And I didn't have pricing. I didn't have, I was like, can I put it in a cooler on like a bike? Like I had no way of getting it. <laughs> I literally, I was like, I, I didn't even, we didn't even know how to order pouches because we had only ordered like the bare minimum so that I could make them for the show. And I figured I'd figure it out. Um, But, you know, John Lawson from Whole Foods was like, tell me about your corrugated pack size or something. And I was like, come again? Like what? I had no clue what they were talking about. Like zero clue. And fortunately for us, again, like, they helped us figure out our pricing and they helped us figure out our distributor. And he, he took his finger and he like tapped on the pouch and it like weeble wobbled over. And he's like, you need to put it in a thing, like in a box on the shelf. So they're not all like, you know, like falling on themselves. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Like I had never thought about any of that stuff. And that's the thing. Like if you're just a regular person going to the grocery store, like you don't think about, that 85 things that have to happen in order for the product to just be on the shelf, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. So I think but, it's nice when you have a nice, when you have those relationships with those, you know, with those stores and they're willing to kind of, you know, they want the new products and they want the interesting flavors and they want the great stories. So they have to, they understand that they're going to have to do a little bit of hand holding for small businesses like us. Are you at the time? Um, And what would you say before we take a break? What would you say were sort of like the biggest pain points slash like 
learning opportunities of those first couple of years. Cause it's been, I mean, it's been about, I mean, a little over a decade, right. That you've been on, you know, supermarket shelves. Um, so do you remember kind of the earlier years and, and sort of what you I feel might, like the differences were? I may have blacked out for like the first couple of years, but um, <laughs> no, there's, there's so many lessons. I think, you know, every day was just kind of a puzzle that we had to solve. I think, you know, my experience really mirrors yours where we had great help from people, but I also didn't know what to ask for. Yeah. And I didn't know when I really needed help. So like, I, like we cut out our labels, like our circular label right. for, for an unreasonable amount of time, probably for like six months, we like would sit down at night and like cut out all of our labels um, yeah. just because, you know, there are those challenges when you're scaling, you yeah. know, you don't know that you can just go and buy labels from a label manufacturer. No. And then the minimum is like, you know, 50,000 and you're like, I mean, that's going to take me years. I'm not going to spend money on that. And where do I even store those things? So you end up just kind of like cutting stuff out yourself. Yeah. Do you wish that you had done something differently yeah, earlier on? A funny thing. Um, many things. I think I wish I would have done so many things differently. Um, if I had known like that it was going to take, that it was going to really take off so quickly, I think I probably would have acted quicker on a lot of things, you know, like bought those, mm -hmm. bought those labels and just <laughs> trusted that they would get used up. Um, and definitely, you know, it's been just a learning experience, every part of it, working with people and working with retailers. And it's been a great time of discovery, honestly. Yeah. Who was your first hire? My first hire, well, it was definitely Luke. <laughs> I mean, um, so co-founder, I guess. Um, right. But first hire outside of that was uh, Luke's brother Jesse. And did he like? Was he ops or was he sales or like what? Where did you feel like you needed the most help? Kind of the earlier, earlier on, like where did you focus? Um, it was actually all just farmers markets. So, you wow. know, we started out with, you know, one or two markets and ended up having like 25 markets a week. So oh my we really tapped into all of our friends and family and just were like, who wants to do a market today? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I think, you know, being a New Yorker, it's like there just aren't 25 farmers markets that we could just get, you know, it's, I think it's a different, the, the California farmers market circuit seems to be a lot more robust, I guess maybe because it's, you know, year round. It, yeah. Year round is a huge deal. Like I just, I think of like where we were and like the time that we launched had so much to do with us being able to succeed. Right. All right. We're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, um, we're going to talk about the details of bitching. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, 
serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Star Edwards from Bitchin' Sauce. Okay, so I everyone knows who listens to this that I like to do a little bit of research before I interview people so that it's a better interview and it's a little bit not, you know, I get less nervous, basically. Um, and when you Google Bitchin' Sauce, do you have any idea how many people there are who literally have devoted themselves to figuring out the recipe to making their own bitch and sauce. Like it's become like a, like a, like Kleenex. Like <laughs> bitch and sauce is now a thing. You know that, that is, I'm sure. That's the best compliment ever. Actually, that is a huge goal of ours. We want to be a generic trademark. So it literally is. I mean, I, I, cause I was like, wait, did they, where did bitch, like, did they, did they, make bitch and sauce or like, and it's just, everyone's had this sauce and they've all tried to hack it. I've never, it's amazing. I've really never seen so much on like a Google search. Um, so I mean, tell me about that. Like, because the name is the name, the name could be, I guess, like, Ooh, a little risque or whatever, because it's bitching. <laughs> I think maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't think when you were, you, yeah, tell me. No, it definitely is like a little risque, but I think um, that's really been a huge bonus for us um, because we have, no one forgets forgets it, which is great. And we had a lot of trial because people are like, what is this? Why would they put that on the packaging? And we, um, it really opens the doors to a lot of people who are not trying to be healthy, you know, who don't actually care about being plant-based or, um, gluten-free or following any of those things. They just happen to think it's funny and they right. are, are buying something that's actually like really clean ingredients and really good for you. No, it's so it's actually really genius. Were you thinking about that at the time or were you just like, this is so good, it's bitching and then it just stuck? It was a, this is so good, it's bitching. But I think also like we Googled like awesome sauce and we're like, oh, that's taken. good. Yeah, no, because I mean, it's funny, because I think about it. And it, like, there's, I don't know, there's like a whole Marmite. Yes, study, you know, like people either love it, or they hate it, but no one feels neutral about mm-hmm. it. And I think that there's something that you've done there where like you remember it and people might be like, Ooh, I don't want that, you know, word in my refrigerator or whatever. But the reality is, is like, no one's going to not feel something about it. And I think that's so smart. Um, And I think it's also so funny and ironic to have in this world of like better for you, everything, you know, everything's clean this and keto that and, 
adaptogenic this and better this, but yours is just, yours is that, but it's called bitchin, which mm-hmm. is just, it's just great. Um, so has the name caused you, have you ever second guessed the name or have you ever had any sort of, you know, thoughts about it or questions? And I know that there are two other, there's um, two other sort of lines now, right? So can you tell me a little bit about A, you know, the name and then B, sort of how you divided, how you started to do also like this dip is nuts and the other, you know, how you sort of thought about building out the business? Yeah, definitely. The Bitchin name, I think the first time I was under a banner at a farmer's market that said Bitchin Sauce, I was like, wow, I didn't really think this through. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe there was some, you know, second guessing there. But um, I mean, you just can't argue with the numbers. (laughs) So when people are coming by and they're just so happy to see it and it makes them laugh, you know, that's, it's good motivation to keep going. Um, we, we got pushback from some people. I think, you know, it was less than like 1% of people would have something negative to say about it. Most people, it was just like, it made their day. Um, and then as we started getting into retailers, definitely like as we were going to, to the East coast, there was kind of a more conservative mm-hmm. mindset there and pushback. And it was interesting too, because we noticed that some of the flavors didn't translate very well yeah. um, to East Coast consumers either. Um, so that is kind of where we came up with the, the Stip is Nuts line. Right. Because um, I, you know, I, I love the bitchin' name and I yeah. didn't want to be like, oh, we are, you know, not going to do this because we don't believe in it. Right. Um, but what we are going to do is we're going to take care of people as best we can. Um, and basically we took like every single customer, you know, suggestion and put it into one like hypoallergenic product, right. uh, which is basically that's our, this dip is nuts line. So we, you know, took these suggestions for different flavors, um, the suggestion to go soy free. Right. And then people who were concerned about our name were like, okay, well, here it is. This dip is nuts. We've right. been using this tagline for years and we'll just put that there instead. That's and so um, I think the real conscious decision was that we would make it look aesthetically the same. Right. So that way, you know, there is still like brand recognition yeah. and like that a line something- through. Yeah. Yeah. That's what like best foods and Hellman's mayonnaise. I'm like, they're, the same. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so I'm glad that you brought up the soy free thing because we actually so we use HPP on our sauces too, which for oh, nice. people listening, it's like high pressure pasteurization. It means that basically you're killing all the bad stuff, but you're not killing the good stuff. And you can make something safe to eat for a longer amount of time without boiling it beyond recognition or adding, you know, a ton of salt or preservatives to it. It's a very old technology that's just now being applied to a lot of food that is fresh, but has a longer shelf life than, you know, three to seven days that you'll see, like, if you see a deli and they sell their own pesto, that's basically a week-long shelf life. But if you see a fresh pesto generally in a supermarket, it's probably been high pressure pasteurized. Is that a pretty good way to sum it all up? Yeah, definitely. HPP, I I love HPP, great technology. Uh, Me too. But um, we tried to change out our, um, our 
our tofu, our miso um, for a chickpea miso instead of a soybean miso. And mm. it came out so radically different that wow. we couldn't. So we like, we're totally non-GMO. We're totally gluten-free. We're vegan, but we couldn't get rid of the soy. And we tried to use coconut aminos instead of tamari. And we couldn't really do that either. It was like something just was missing. So I don't know if it was the HPP or if we have to go back, but it is interesting that um, how important do you think it is to sort of make it all of these things? Like, I, I guess one of my questions is like, how important do you think was it to make it soy free? But also the, um, the base is almond based, mm-hmm. right? So if the, this dip is nuts, not almond based, or it's just, it's still almond based, but it just doesn't have any of the other allergens. It's still almond based. So it's, it's basically bitchin sauce. It just doesn't have soy. And we use right. the coconut yeah. aminos too, um, which it was challenging actually switching over to coconut aminos. It really only yeah. lends itself to certain flavors. Like it has a certain yep. sweetness to it. Yep. And so like we definitely geared it towards flavors that you know, it would, that would contribute positively. Yeah. I thought it would be like a pretty simple swap, um, but it was not. <laughs> so we're like, it's okay, not. fine. We'll just keep the soy. It's only in a couple skews. No problem. Um, I know. The umami is a big deal. You can't get rid of the I umami know. flavors. I know. It's true. It really is. And even the chickpea miso was like a little sweeter than the soy miso. So the double whammy of it just made it not, it just didn't have that like, roof of your mouth kind of clucky feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So one of the things we were talking about before um, we started recording was that one of the challenges for us and um, it's ongoing is that we are a vegan cooking sauce in a pouch and mm-hmm. um, refrigerated Um a lot of stores don't know who our buyer is. So some stores are like, you should be in Delhi. Some stores are like, you, we have a refrigerated dips and maybe you can go there near the hummus. Some mm-hmm. think we're better in produce. Um, but more and more stores are starting to carve out a set for the more, you know, the, you know, I guess like veggie based flavor builders, meal helpers, Yes, dips, but almost like, almost like what yours is. Cause I don't think of like, I've been using bitchin not so much as like a dip for a chip, the way that I would use hummus, but I'm using it the way I use our sauce, like mm-hmm. on a burger, on a chicken sandwich, or like, you know, dunking my stuff into it on my plate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine long winded question, but I imagine <laughs> that when you started were buyers confused about where to put it? Do you feel like that shifted? For me, I feel like you've kind of paved the way. So like, that's really kind. You know, <laughs> no, I do. I feel like there are, you know, we always say put us next to the veginase because they, wow. they're in all the stores and they're veggie based and they're refrigerated and they're a condiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could also say put us next to bitchin. So how do you feel like that's, changed do you do you feel like the conversations with buyers have shifted are they all sort of moving over to understanding that 
dips don't just mean hummus anymore and sauce isn't just shelf stable anymore. And like, I guess just your thoughts on, on all of that. Yeah, I definitely think that there has been a um, kind of a radical shift to fresh food. People are just, you know, they, they automatically assume that the refrigerator has better quality. Um, and I think, you know, probably right about that. Um, the buyers at first, I think our tub lends itself to thinking that it's like a hummus, mm-hmm. which is great. We love being next to the hummus. Right. Um, but, you know, there's a lot, there are, there's like five different sections of a store where they could possibly put you. And it's kind of like a scavenger hunt for the customer <laughs> to be like, right. where is it in the exactly. store? Yeah. Um, and especially for us, you know, looking, we're trying to like look at data now to be like, okay, like where are we selling the most? How is it going? It's really interesting to see, you know, if you just put the product in a place that, you know, is, has high foot traffic, that's where you have the most sales. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that it's a problem that everyone's trying to solve at the same time, especially with the advent of like, um, you know, beyond meat where mm-hmm. it's like you, there's plant-based stuff now that's kind of being incorporated. And do you want to just kind of shove it into like a black hole of vegan stuff in the back right. of the store? Or do we want to put it where customers can actually find it? Yeah. Um, and it so, seems like they're like on the fence about that. Like some stores are like, this is where we put all of you, you know, hippie vegan products, right? Mm-hmm. Except that most of our hippie vegan products are really good with lamb chops. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, they're not, it's not like your, your mom's tempeh, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think a lot of them are sort of starting to understand that kind of bringing it out from that like weird section in the back you know, mm-hmm. by the, by the maintenance closet is like a, <laughs> a good idea because this is the type of stuff that consumers are looking for, you know? Yeah. It's um, good. It's a good time to be a plant-based dip. Yes. It is a good time to be a plant-based dip, but mm-hmm. um, at the same time, I feel like, you know, a lot of times we'll get stores. I mean, not the smaller stores, Whole Foods immediately knew exactly where to put us because they've been doing this for so long and they, you know, they actually did what you did. They had us in three different, they had us in produce, they had us in hummus and they had us in the refrigerated condiments area and they mm-hmm. kind of tested. Um, oh, wow. And we did do the best in produce, but it didn't entirely make sense in produce. Like it makes sense in the refrigerated condiments section, mm-hmm. which I was a little bummed about. But when we moved everyone over there, um, it took like a little time, but consumers did come right back up to the velocities that we were at in produce. So it was fine. Um, but in like the larger, more conventional stores, I feel like they're sort of like we have four feet of this like alt dairy weird stuff, which includes everything from sauerkraut to kombucha to, mm-hmm. um, you know, perfect bar. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, it's, it's like, super random in a way. Um, but it is where people go to discover new things. They, they're, it's like honey mamas. They're looking, they're like, Ooh, why is this chocolate in the fresh section? There must be something better about it, but people do have to know how to get to it. And that's the part I feel like a lot of us are trying to figure out. So how have you helped consumers know where to find you? I think, you know, we definitely tried to kind of um, 
direct, not direct, but encourage buyers to put us in like the hummus section because that mm -hmm. that is the primary way that people are enjoying bitch and sauces they're they're dipping it and it's great because you can use it on other things too and you can cook with it but most tubs like are downed with a bag of chips or right. carrots <laughs> right. so i think like we definitely try to get placement in in that deli area um but you know without some some stores just don't want to do that and right. so if we get shut down in that area and someone else wants to take us, we're like, great, let's go there instead. Yep. Um, and then just a lot of customer service when people are like, I can't find you at the store. I know. We, we try to help them out. I know. It, that's the thing. I feel like we'll put out announcements like we're finally blah, blah. And we get all these DMs like I went and I couldn't find you. And I'm like, oh, they, they didn't. There's definitely like a set somewhere in that store that they missed. Um you know, can oh, you yeah. tell me a little bit also about online? Um, I find it very hard. Um, we are setting up a new website because we closed the cooking school. And basically our website was sort of like, you can take classes. There was a cafe, you can book a wedding. Oh, and also we have sauce. And now mm -hmm. the new website is going to be like, we have sauce and also you can take an online class and it's just going to be much kind of pared down mm -hmm. and you will be able to buy from us because we are getting um, a 3PL, which oh, that's um, great for all you listeners out there. I will not be personally sending all the sauce out of my house anymore. We will <laughs> actually have a warehouse that will be sending packages to people. Um, it's still going to be really expensive because it's refrigerated FedEx overnight. So you, you have an online business. Would you say it's important to you? Would you say you've learned a lot kind of figuring it out? Does it, you know, is it, a, is it something that you invest in? How do you think about online? I have strong opinions about online and I think that they probably are unpopular ones. <laughs> um, I, I, it's a huge challenge to ship a refrigerated product especially yeah. one that you can't freeze or that yeah. you don't want to like start off by freezing yeah like our product can be frozen and then the customer can you know mix it back together if there's separation but i just don't ever want anyone to open up a tub and get that on their like first experience so we're trying yeah. to ship something with a very like specific temperature range and it's really mm -hmm. difficult um also we have like an odd policy of refund and replace so anything mm -hmm. if there's like ever a problem like if they have like a single sauce explode we have we refund the whole purchase and then we send them another one that, right. to replace that purchase and, by the way like i sent samples to people last week and fedex was just running late oh and yeah so it got there in 48 hours instead of 24 hours and that would be on me if I had a refund policy, right? Like oh. it's stuff beyond your control. It's definitely beyond your control. Yeah. yeah. So, and then if they decide to play, you know, soccer with the boxes, that's right. really tough. On the <laughs> <product>. <laughs> um, but it's something that during um, COVID definitely like there was a month there where we were like, okay, how can we support this? And you know how it was something that to keep our staff busy also. Right. Um, Cause we wanted to, you know, just kind of, keep everyone as as near normal as possible right. um 
So we did, you know, some shipping and we paid for shipping, which I think that a lot of people just don't realize how expensive like overnighting a box is. Um, And then as soon as like UPS and, and the post service just, they sent out like a warning. They were like, Hey, by the way, all of your two day shipping, it's not going to be two days anymore. And it pretty much put a halt on our ability to send stuff ourselves. Yeah. Kind of a bummer, but I mean, it's something that we still offer online. um, And it's something that, like our model moving forward is we just really want to team up with um, other people right. who that's their specialty, like, yeah. you know, Imperfect Foods, um, you know, Instacart working yeah. with people who, or even like, you know, meal plans that deliver like Sun Basket. We're like, okay, this is a great way for people to get bitch and sauce delivered to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely of that, you know, Kroger is going to figure out e-commerce much quicker than I am and Mm -hmm. they're going to be able to handle it. So I feel like my job is to make sure that I'm, you know, I, we're, we're lightweight. We are unbreakable. You know, there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of waste. Like you don't need a ton of bubble wrap around us, things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, but I agree. I mean, I'm not going to build out a massive direct-to-consumer platform because shipping overnight is anywhere between $20 and $50. And while I think people in in a pandemic w- will occasionally pay that much, I don't. We had someone order three cases of every SKU a couple oh, wow. weeks ago. <laughs> it's like that's great. Well, yeah. Also, I was like, what are they doing with all this sauce? Like, I couldn't. That's a lot of sauce. And you like yours, you can freeze it, but it like even then, like, you know, so I was a little confused. Um, <laughs> but I think long story short is it's kind of like, I mean, I think that the direct to consumer businesses that have very lightweight shelf stable products can, can get big numbers much quicker online. Mm-hmm obviously than a refrigerated product and Mm -hmm. our job it feels to me like you agree is to build the relationships more with the buyers at the stores and the retailers and tell our consumers to go find us at those places um rather than trying to build out the whole thing by ourselves because i don't even know how profitable it can be even if we charge everyone for everything that goes into it you know it's but I think the thing the pandemic showed us is like, we do have to have it available because there is the random person who wants to buy three cases of every SKU. Yeah. Well, and that actually makes sense. I think that was one of the things too, is most people are trying to buy vision sauce, but they want to buy like one or two tubs. Yeah, right. And that makes no sense. No. Yeah. No. That's a like $50 tub of sauce. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's so funny. I remember when I first opened the cooking school, I had a policy that we did not ship anything because I was not exactly a business person. And also I opened it from a sustainability perspective because the whole point of teaching people how to cook is that they're kind of like stepping outside of the more industrialized food system. Mm -hmm. I have um, moved a little bit from my like stake in the ground and it happened. I remember someone for like holiday wanted to order our granola um, which we made, you know, fresh in the, in the cooking school. Um, and they wanted to order it for their family in like 12 different States. And basically I wrote a very impassioned letter giving that person the recipe 
and be oh, wow. like, can you make <laughs> this at home? And then, you know, spread the recipe to your 12 family members across the United States so that we're not sort of adding, you know, we're not making it worse. We're part of the solution, not the problem. And like, yeah. I'll never forget the woman who sort of like became the head of ops at the time kind of sat me down and she's like, so here's the thing, like, <laughs> like <laughs> this is a business. And if you tell customers that you won't, like, she doesn't want to make the granola herself. She wants to send her family a gift. And like, if that is thoroughly offensive to you, then we might want to rethink like your business model here. Like maybe <laughs> it's not a business. And I was like, oh yeah, good point. Good point. Um, that's so awesome. I've come a long way, but I still, you know, the the packaging kind of gets to me a little bit. But um, I have, also understand that, you know, what'd you say? Oh, it's good to have friends that will have like that tough conversation with you. Yes. No, I know. We're still, um, I'm like, you know, we we did a bunch of those like personality tests and Myers-Briggs tests and like basically we're kind of opposite on every scale, you know, <laughs> like, oh, wow. which is a perfect, perfect person to work with. Um, speaking of, tell me about your team now. How many are you, um, you know, any kind of lessons you've learned along the way about hiring, firing, all of it, team building that founders might want to hear? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we are a family owned business, so that's super fun and has its yeah. own awesome set of challenges. Um, our our day to day work is you know myself and my husband, and then Harrison and Olivia Edwards are his mm -hmm. younger siblings, and they are mm -hmm. um, the other officers. And then I have a great friend from childhood who's my chief of staff, and we just have this amazing team of people right yeah. now. Um, it's actually it's it's like seventy people, which wow. is wow it's been really fun actually to yeah. see that team grow and, you know, just all the different facets of the business. Um, like everyone is just really coming into, I feel like this year, especially everyone's like really coming into their own of just like taking ownership for their roles. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just, it's really a good thing working with people. I and think that there's a lot to learn though from it too. Like yeah. you definitely like with hiring and firing, like none of that is, super fun but if yeah. you just work hard at it like it can be something that attended to has great fruit I was just talking to someone today about hiring and firing and you know no one wants to fire people and it's actually very cumbersome and complex and it can be expensive and it can be all sorts of terrible things and everyone's answer to that is just like well hire better mm -hmm. but I don't you know, how, how would you, how would you sort of encapsulate, like, what does hiring better mean? Like, I'm imagining that you've made some mistakes in hiring, like we all have, and then you've had some really great hires, like hopefully we all have. And would you say that there's anything that you did differently? Did you make the job clearer? Did you go with your gut instead of like their experience? Like, would you say there's anything that you've kind of learned along the way that has helped you become a better hire or a better boss? Um, I think like seeing people succeed at something that they're actually really good at 
mm-hmm. is one of my greatest joys in life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something we call it the ideal Harry because mm-hmm. back when we were all in the <laughs> in the kitchen, um, you know, we were just making sauce together, and we were like, Harry, what is your ideal job at Bitch and Sauce if you can do anything? And mm-hmm. he like said at the time, I remember he's like, I want to do like marketing, and so it's really cool seeing him like in that role now. Um, but like definitely like. I think the best hires that we've had is where we've been able to see people like for a long time, either like peers or even just like family members and, and see like their strong suits and then kind of be like, okay, this is where you're going to fit the best in this company. This is where you can contribute the most and where you you will have like the most, um, you know, just where you'll feel like you're doing a good job. Right. And that does seem to be the key. It's like anything else, you know, when someone, feels connected and they feel like they're doing a good job and they feel like they're appreciated for doing a good job. They just want to do a better job, you know? And it's like this virtuous Mm -hmm. cycle that happens as opposed to like when someone starts feeling like, uh, I'm not doing so great. And then the vibe gets weird and then they get more insecure Mm -hmm. and then, you know, it kind of goes downhill. I have one last question before my sort of like last question, but I am wondering about, so you have a bunch of SKUs. I'm just wondering when you let one go, how, like, do you have a process for sort of like, and I'm asking this because one of our SKUs happens to be sort of my favorite. Um, (laughs) Isn't, it just isn't getting on as many shelves and it's not growing as quickly Um, the other ones are just kind of lapping it and it's partly again, like, because it doesn't get on as many shelves, it's not as popular. It doesn't get that kind of like flywheel effect. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm starting to hear kind of people say like, you need to focus and don't have too many. If some, you know, make room for others on the shelf, if one of them isn't like performing as well. And I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts about retiring SKUs or how many, you know, how, how much innovation and how many you ideally have, or, you know, just any thoughts you have. Yeah. I don't really have like a, a business reasoning for why we're doing what we're doing there. Um, (laughs) I just, I like these flavors and they're the ones that we're offering. And so they're the ones that are out there. Um, We definitely, when we have new flavors, we, we do keep making new flavors, but it's, you know, like we'll make like the sweet sauce, which is like, you know, something a little bit different, um, kind of like a fresh Nutella thing. And yeah, yeah. we just saw like an opportunity there and we we're like, this is great. We can do this. Um, but like with the original flavors, like we tested everything and at the farmer's market, you get such instant feedback mm-hmm. that we started out with like seasonal flavors and then our seasonal flavors would become permanent flavors if they right. performed well. But it and, is funny that there's people who are like, man, you got to bring back the ranch. It's the best flavor. And I'm like, I will never do that. <laughs> I know. We had a pesto for like a hot sec. Like uh-huh. it was like three weeks we had pesto. Um, and it was a vegan walnut pesto and it was really good. But it just, it, I couldn't get the top from like turning that basil color, turning like not as bright green. And Mm -hmm. I just had like nightmares of people squeezing it out and like that coming out and people being like, (laughs) I'm never buying this again. And I hate everything that they've ever made. So like I 
called it like really early. And still to this day, people are like, didn't you have, can't we get the pesto back? I'm like, no, you know, I have like, you know, <laughs> traumatized from the pesto, you know, gate. Um, okay. Last question. Um, what do you wish you had known? Like if you are a founder listening to this podcast and you can speak directly to someone who is trying to get their thing off the ground or wondering if they should do it or wondering if they should still do it, um, any advice you have, anything you wish someone had told you earlier on, anything you'd like anyone to know? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just like, don't be afraid. I think a lot of the, the time, like we actually, we got kind of bad advice to begin with where people just like were installing fear in us where they were like, hey, like you should be concerned about this and this and this. And um, in a lot of cases, we just like ignored it and plowed ahead and it was like, really good for us to ignore them um but then at the same time it's like don't be afraid to ask questions because there's a lot of people out there and resources that are available to people that like i just we just got like signed up with our chamber of commerce and like i'm like oh my gosh all these things were here and would have been so helpful right when we started this and had like zero money um like now all of a sudden like i'm finding grants that are available so like, I think mm-hmm. for people who are starting their own business, like, definitely, like, don't be afraid to ask questions and then, you know, keep the stuff that's good and throw away the stuff that's bad. Yep. Great. Star, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it was great talking to you. And I really do love bitching. It's bitching. Yay. People, um, East Coasters. I feel like I've looked at the demographics and it's about half and half, but East Coasters, you might not be as familiar with Bitchin' as West Coasters are, um, but they're here and they're coming on strong. Um, So definitely go to their website and go to the store locator and find it. And if you love us, they might be near us. (laughs) That's a good... um, that's a good way to look for them, but it's delish. I mean, I, I'm not even like a huge Chipotle flavor fan and I love the Chipotle flavor. So thank really you good so with much. like a crispy chicken, I have to say. Um, Jess, thank you. This was, I think, our first episode on um, that we haven't had a tech problem. I'm My so, goodness. Unless there's a problem in post-production, I think we're good to go. So Jess, I don't know, maybe you have the magic touch. And after all these years of me saying Matt, you know, is the best engineer in the world. (laughs) Um, Anyway. Matt's still the best. I know. I know. Um, And I hope he's listening to this and like hearing me say that Um, because it was kind of a joke. Anyway, thank you so much, both of you. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Everyone keep listening. I have guests booked through like November at this point. I don't know what's going on, but um, I have a lot of people in the uh, hopper with um, lots of great advice. So keep listening and um, have a great week. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.